You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Hello, yoga teacher. Welcome to episode nine of the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. This week's topic, addiction and recovery in a yoga setting, is really important but often overlooked. I think this is partially because of the shame and the judgment that comes up around the topic of addiction and also the tendency for people not to talk about these struggles publicly. At the same time, our idea of addiction tends towards the dramatic, and we may even miss our own tendencies towards addiction, or think that the information doesn't apply to us if we aren't teaching in a recovery setting. One of the most important concepts that I got from this conversation is that we all struggle with addiction on more of a spectrum than a binary. My guest, Margaret Kirshner, is a certified substance abuse counselor trauma-informed yoga therapist, and a birth doula. She works at a medically assistant treatment recovery center and teaches trauma-informed yoga classes and yoga trainings. In this episode, she focuses on how yoga teachers can bring an awareness of addiction and recovery topics to their classes, no matter what the style or the setting. The conversation that I had with Margaret was inspiring, funny, and deep. I hope you enjoy it. Margaret, welcome to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Thank you so much for coming to talk about yoga for addiction and recovery. Thank you for having me. Let's begin by, if you don't mind, just sharing a little bit about your background with this topic, uh, how you got interested, and whatever you feel is relevant. Well, let's see. I started off as a yoga teacher in my uh, later years, and I became a birth doula after that. And then I uh, moved to Asheville, and I met someone who is in recovery from addiction. And I realized as I got to know him that I'm actually probably in a recovery from addiction too, but it's not from substances <laughs> or alcohol. It's, um, you know, people call it codependence, but I don't like the, the term codependence. You know, it's, it's something along the lines of over-efforting at taking care of others and caring about others' opinions. And, you know, I kind of got lost in that caretaking and caregiving role and, um, kind of, you know, had some addictive tendencies, probably myself, realized that a lot of addictive tendencies are um, just human tendencies. We're all, you know, addicted in some way. And, you know, there's a spectrum, you know, it can be a very destructive addiction, or it can be kind of a more moderate addiction that doesn't cause quite as much harm, but addiction nonetheless. I love that you brought that up right away because I was kind of hoping you would <laughs> because I don't, oh, yeah. have, I don't really like, I'm, I feel like I'm very uh, aware of the places where I have addictive tendencies <laughs> mm-hmm. and they're not, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. well, the only substance is coffee, but um, yeah, that's a common one, <laughs> but it, it feels like a, that, that one, I'm not really interested in, um, untangling too much because there's 
some real therapeutic benefits also. I agree. I agree. <laughs> but the one, the one, the one that really kind of comes up for me the most is like social media and, you know, being online and kind of self-comforting through that. Absolutely. And I'm glad that you also brought up the phrase self-comforting because one of the definitions that I have heard, which seems to make a whole lot of sense as a definition of addiction is ritualized, compulsive, comfort-seeking. Interesting. So it's what we do in a ritualized way that can have a compulsive quality to it that provides comfort. So addiction can be an attempt to achieve comfort from pain. That could be physical pain. Uh, It could be emotional pain. People say, I'm in pain. You know, I've had this this injury, this, um, this chronic illness that causes me constant pain, or I cannot sleep. I sleep very little and I just need something to sleep, or I feel very anxious. And so I turn toward substances or behaviors that provide me a sense of ease or comfort or a feeling of solace. And the thing that first seems like a remedy actually eventually, because it's compulsive and it has that ritualized nature, can turn into destruction. Interesting. So not to like get too personal, feel free to steer us in a different direction. But, you know, when you mentioned the, your tendency to nurture, does that still fit into that same self-comforting pattern? Yeah, absolutely. Because if I am paying a lot of attention to someone else's problem or pain or fixing them in some way, it deflects the attention on my own need or um, time that I take to take my own needs into consideration and my, you know, to self, do some self-inquiry and self-care. And so it's a way to avoid. It's a way to take care of others and avoid my own stuff. So yeah, yeah, in that way, I kind of lost myself and I, I, it became destructive because I was not aware of what I actually wanted and needed after a while. You know, I was busy and I didn't understand that it was important for me to pause and reflect and do some self-inquiry to notice who am I? Where am I going? What do I want? And what do I need right now to be a whole person? And I became less and less whole and more and more fragmented. And that caused me and others around me a great deal of suffering until I (laughs) was in so much suffering that I um, reached out for some help. So by this definition, it seems like most of us are probably either acting out addictions or in recovery from addictions, would you say? Sure. Yeah, I think we're all kind of on that spectrum. And even we could be addicted to our emotions, you know? We could like feeling angry. We might like that rush of intensity or that attention that we get when we are sick 
and full of drama. You know, there may be some, I don't know, some uh, upsides to being in our pain. So how do we, or how do you recommend that people evaluate their relationship with with their self-soothing behaviors to figure out where that line is that they need to ask for help? Yeah, I guess if it starts to cause problems in their lives and in their relationships, you know, does this behavior or substance that you compulsively use for your own comfort get in the way of relating to others and doing your job or being fully present to your children or your partner or your um, co-workers or your family members in some way? Does it get in the way for you for um, your daily life? And for many people, the lives of the addicted person, their addiction, um, gets derailed by all kinds of feelings like shame because they may have a uh, tendency to hide and isolate and then need to make up stories about, you know, where they were. Um, they may feel guilty about missing things or not showing up for things. Uh, they may have some fear. Like, oh, I can't, I can't be in that particular situation without my substance or behavior. I might need to um, avoid. And so the same can also be true for loved ones of addicted people. You know, they may have those same kinds of feelings if they're trying to cover up and make, make it look as though everything is still okay in our relationship or in our home. You know. So they may also have shame and guilt and fear, and they may isolate. And then there may be moments of hope. Oh, this is all going to be okay. You know, I can handle this. I can get through this, and they can too. Oh, look, they're not doing that thing that they used to do anymore. And it can be an exhausting kind of roller coaster ride of being either the loved one of someone who's addicted or being that addicted person. So there are many ways that it shows up and can cause destruction. So, you know, I mean, knowing that all of us, most of us, I think, have our lives touched by addiction in one way or another. What are some other things that are maybe misconceptions that are out there that you would love to clear up, especially for people who interface with people, interface with other people? within the context of teaching yoga? Yeah, I think one of the biggies is that addiction is a disease and it can be likened to diabetes or asthma or high blood pressure. And with those kinds of diseases, we're all pretty familiar with the idea that people need to get medicine for those kinds of conditions. And when they take their medicine and they make some lifestyle changes, that generally they can function well and live their lives pretty normally. And if they don't have their medication or their lifestyle is not so conducive to um, health for those conditions, they may not do so well in their physical body or in their um, mental capacity. 
And so addiction is just like that. Some people need medication to deal with their addiction. And so there is, um, I work in a medically assisted treatment center for people with opioid addiction. And I am now a um, certified substance abuse counselor intern. And we treat people with medication for their substance abuse, as well as offer them wraparound services, counseling, as well as um, yoga therapy, mindfulness, and other forms of therapy like EMDR, which is a trauma-informed psychological intervention. And so there are many ways that we can treat this disease. And it's not a moral failing as it once was thought. It's not something that people choose just because they want to indulge themselves. You know, it's, it's actually a brain disorder. It's a brain misfunction of some sort. And we're just starting to understand that now. And so I think if we start to understand that as yoga teachers, and if we know of someone who may have an addiction problem, or it's probably not so evident, but if it becomes evident, you know, the stigma can be reduced. And we can treat them with compassion and kindness and understanding and not as a um, character defect. That makes a lot of sense. So far, a lot of what you've been talking about have been ways for us to destigmatize addiction and to cultivate empathy. Yeah. Which is wonderful. And like you were saying, we don't we're not always going to know. In fact, frequently we won't know. We will have people in our yoga classes who struggle with addiction and we won't have a clue. Exactly. It's not evident. Right. 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 So I imagine that there are though some things that yoga teachers can do to be inclusive and supportive to people in their, in their classes. What are some examples of that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the, best things um, that I have learned about yoga and about recovery from anything at all, you know, whether it's um, an illness or working through an addiction or an injury, is that with yoga, consistency is more important than intensity. So when we do our practice consistently, and when we are in recovery and we follow the program, of recovery consistently, and we come together with other people who are also doing the same thing on a fairly regular basis, it's really helpful. And it doesn't have to be a strong, powerful practice where we sweat and get exhausted. It can be a gentle practice of coming home with compassion to our bodies and noticing something about ourselves through that practice. That's beautiful. It sounds like yoga could be a really helpful adjunct to other recovery work. Absolutely. In fact, there is there is something called yoga for 12-step recovery. But you don't have to be in a 12-step program to benefit from yoga. What I now teach and really love <laughs> is is trauma-informed yoga. And that's slightly different. And there's many things I'd love to get into about that. So yoga is such an effective way of 
reducing emotional and physical pain. It just works on so many multiple levels simultaneously. And one of the unique things about um, trauma-informed yoga is that it's slow and simple and self-directed, and the language is different. It's uh, inventory or invitational language. So there are phrases like notice and explore and with curiosity, you might choose to reach your arms out wide to your sides or perhaps bring them all the way up over your head. And so lots of choices are offered, lots of phrases like when you are ready or options may include <laughs> and various ways of very subtly using language that is not confrontive or demanding. It's not like I'm the teacher and you're the student. It's almost like together, let's explore this thing and let's try this out. And the teacher is doing the poses together with the students, which is different from what many yoga teachers are trained to do, which is to maybe demonstrate a little piece of it and then start walking around the room and observing and offering assists. So this is different. It's different style. It is more about being together, not letting someone feel as though they've been abandoned or they're on their own or they're being observed and judged. It's more of a um, joining with the student as if you were a therapist and a patient or client working together and just for a moment exploring what it feels like to be in a body. Many people with trauma describe their, their sense of themselves as an outline, an outline that doesn't have any interior filled in, which is kind of interesting, that they don't have a sense of feeling inside. And so much of the language involves um, the invitation to very compassionately and with curiosity examine what is it that I feel? Do I feel warmth? Do I feel coolness? Do I feel my feet touching the floor? Can I wiggle my toes and have a sense of that feeling down there? What it, would it be like to bring my arms out wide? Is there a feeling in my arms, my chest, my breathing? As I bring my arms up a little higher, where do I stop? And where do I keep going? How long do I stay? And when do I back up and ease off? So the yoga teacher can give invitations like, it's okay to do this much. Or if you'd like, you can explore doing it this way or doing this much. And there's no judgment. So it seems like in this style of yoga that the yoga teacher's role is more about space, like holding space for people to do their own exploration and, and offering suggestions more than being in a, a teacher role. Holding space is a lovely way to say it. Yes. Holding space for the person to have their own experience of being in a body and feeling something in their body. 
many people who have experienced trauma, especially if it's complex trauma, or sometimes it's called um, big T, big T trauma, which is, you know, high level trauma. They've lost the ability to feel on the inside because their focus, perhaps from such an early age, has been to be hypervigilant of their exterior environment and look for clues of danger and threat. And to simply survive requires that they become very attuned to, let's say, the smell of alcohol in someone's breath or a look of anger in someone's eyes or facial expression, sounds, you know, a door slamming, a car coming up the driveway. Um, suddenly the awareness is hyper alert, you know, and if that's what they had to do to survive, they may have turned off some of the inside sensations so they don't have a sense of when they're hungry or when they're full or when they are tired and need a break. They may not know how to make choices on their own behalf for their comfort and well-being. So this kind of yoga is a way to help someone to come back and claim their body for the first time or reclaim it if it's been lost through abuse or accident or horrific trauma or maybe even just, um, what's the term? Systemic trauma or cumulative trauma, you know. Repeated trauma. Repeated trauma. Yeah, for, let's say someone's been criticized or abused or humiliated, you know, and that happened over time in an abusive relationship, let's say, kind of a common scenario. You know, they may have had it at one time, the ability to feel, and then they may have lost that ability because of the abuse and they can reclaim it. And then for others who never seem to have it from maybe infancy or maybe even the perinatal period, you know, the, the early embryonic period, maybe they had trauma at that point. Their mother was um, not healthy. And so maybe they didn't have a sense of being in their bodies. So they can claim it for the first time through a practice that is slow. It has to be slow because it can be overwhelming to suddenly return to a body, you know, like a near-death experience where people are sometimes, you, you hear stories where people are suddenly returned to their body with a thud and a high impact, which can be unsettling. <laughs> yeah. So. It sounds like in some cases, yoga might not just be an adjunct therapy, but be a really important, powerful component of their recovery. Absolutely. This is something that therapists are now um, incorporating into their private work with clients in their offices. So, and, you know, so uh, mental health providers um, are being taught how to work with people who have mental health conditions, you know, bipolar, depression, schizophrenia, anxiety, of course, and to help them to slowly, at their own speed, reclaim their agency and their feelings of being in control and in charge of their own bodies 
So for example, for someone who maybe was unable to run away in a traumatic event, maybe they were held down or maybe there was debris that trapped them in a car or under, you know, some building that fell down or something traumatic, you know, they may not have a sense of their legs, for example. And so for a therapist to invite them to feel their legs might be unsettling. They might not have the capacity. It might induce some fear. So maybe a a very small and simple way would be to sit in a chair and the therapist might invite them to bring their hands to their thighs and start to rub their hands back and forth on the tops of their thighs, maybe with a rocking motion or, you know, a hinging motion. And then, you know, the therapist might say something like, you know, what sensations do you feel in your thighs or in your hands? Is there warmth? Do you feel the friction of your hands crossing your your pants? Things like that. Or maybe invite the person to stand up and then to sit back down again so that the person gets an idea of legs and muscles in the legs and feelings of movement in legs until they get a sense of something, anything. So what about, let's bringing, bringing it back to the yoga room, back to the yoga space. Uh-huh. Imagine a teacher who wants to be sensitive to, you know, this very common struggle. Yeah. Isn't necessarily ready to take a whole trauma-informed teacher training and, and completely change their approach. But what are some things that they can think about? What are some things that they can incorporate, some ideas they can incorporate into their classes that could be helpful? Okay, I've got, I've got a couple of ideas. I would um, simply remind students of their capacity to make choices for their own comfort. So when you're offering a yoga pose, you might offer a different way, a modification. Uh, an alternative. Um, You might use phrases like, bring in some curiosity here. You may want to try this. You may want to move this way. You may want to engage here or soften there. One of the things that I like to do is add pauses. Instead of continuously moving, like in a vinyasa flow, you may want to invite students to pause. Stop all the movement for maybe just a few seconds and ask the question, what are you aware of on the inside now? And it could be anything. And you can offer things like the feeling of your hands pressing the mat on the pinky finger side and thumb side. The feeling of warmth or coolness. The incoming and the outgoing breath. One of the phrases that I like is, join the breath, already in progress. Because <laughs> the breath is already going and we forget. Right. And we can rejoin it anytime. That's beautiful. I love it. Yeah. Um, you can ask students to locate sensations and track the sensations as they shift. So let's say, Arms are being lowered after they've been up in the air for a while. Might, as, as the arms are being lowered, you might say, notice sensations of muscles as you lower your arms. Any warmth or coolness, any tingling, 
Now notice as your arms are down by your sides, the feeling there in your fingertips. Using language that invites a subtle awareness, helping them to look deeper, not just on the exterior like the muscles, but what about the incoming breath? What does that feel like in your nose or in your belly or in your chest? What about the outgoing breath? How is that different from the incoming breath? Like little tiny nuances, little details that might normally go unnoticed. Um, the last thing that I might offer, slowing down. Just moving, even if you've got a faster paced class, just every so often, slow it way down. And that could be really, really challenging too, to hold a posture and to slow down a movement that you normally would move through quite quickly. To perhaps invite people to nourish themselves. Nourish themselves. What a concept. You know, totally or, or probably <laughs> unlike our daily lives where we are encouraged to produce, perform, go fast, make something happen, check off the to-do list. What about nourishing ourselves in a really slow way? Sounds blissful. <laughs> You're definitely yeah. making, making me want to come to your class. And it's not always blissful. So it's not designed to be a kind of a practice that is necessarily gentle or restorative or blissful. It can actually be very, very challenging to go slow, to pay attention, to nourish ourselves. One of the ways that we can help people to tolerate discomfort is to use a countdown. So let's say you're in a yoga pose. You can say, okay, we're going to we're going to we're going to count down from 10, 9, 8 and then you go and then some people may join you or they may stay silent and you just keep going so they know that this challenge right here that we're currently in has an end point and we're getting there and you can practice being uncomfortable for this amount of time if you'd like. There's no expectation that you stay for the full count. It's simply uh, an indication, kind of a, a map. Here's where we're going next, and here's where it ends. We all know that when we get to one, generally, a bell rings or something happens, and we're done. <laughs> right. I love that. Actually, I use that a lot in my own practice, but I have not thought to use it exactly like that in my teaching. So I'm going to try that. You know, it can be really helpful for someone who's brand new to yoga and who thinks, oh, my God. This is unbelievable. There's, I can't do this for one second more. <laughs> and when will this end? When will she stop? How am I looking? People are judging me. But then when she starts counting, oh, okay. All right. Here Only I am. More okay, so it's over. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. Okay. And then there might even be a feeling of satisfaction or pride or. Or maybe there isn't, you know, maybe he had to come out he had to come out early. Relief, of course. <laughs> but maybe if, if that person didn't stay for the whole time, next time. Oh, that only lasts for that amount of time? Oh, okay. All right, next time I'll try it for the full time. 
And then maybe you can say after you get to one, something like, not every, you might not hold this for 10 seconds. You know, the first time we do this, it might feel awkward and odd and uncomfortable, and it might not be possible. And then another time, we might hold for longer or shorter. Who knows? You know, kind of just throw that out there and move on. That's good. That's a really good tip. So in this podcast, on this podcast, I like to invite my listeners to take on a challenge every week. So this week, you know, you had an idea for an experiment that you wanted to invite them to run in their class. And I'm going to let you describe that. But of course, in this moment, I'm feeling super inspired by your countdown idea. So maybe people can choose whether they want or or even do both. But I'm going to say one option for your your invitation for this week is to try some countdowns in your in your classes. And then Margaret, what was the other thing? The other thing that I really liked was adding pauses and asking the question, what are you aware of on the inside now? And I can elaborate on that one just a little bit. This comes from CRIM, C-R-M, which is Community Resiliency Model. And it's a model for teaching people how to return to resiliency, how to foster resiliency. And so there's some signs in our bodies, everybody's body, that indicates when we have stress. And some of the common ones are tense muscles. When we're stressed, our muscles will probably be tense. Our breathing will probably be shallow and erratic. Our heart may start to race. We might feel pain in our body somewhere. Our minds might start to get really spinning fast. So we can recognize that there are some sensations in the body that indicate, I'm feeling stress. And then there are other sensations in the body that indicate that stress is starting to subside and release. And some of those might be yawning or burping. Not something that I would have thought of first off, but when I started to teach yoga, I would see a lot of people in my class start to yawn. And at first I thought, I must be boring everyone, until I learned later on that yawning is a sign of stress relieving. I'm so glad you said that because I totally had a private session this afternoon and she was doing a lot of yawning and I was like... Is she really tired or am I being boring? <laughs> Usually it's at the beginning of a session too, or beginning of a class. You might see a lot of yawning, um, shaking. Yeah, this is kind of interspersed. but <laughs> Okay. But yeah, when people start to move their arms too, they start to yawn because their lungs just get opened up. Yeah, I'm going to take it. For as I'm going to take it as she was releasing stress because we, we did do yeah. a lot of things. We did talk about a lot of things that were reframing things that she was feeling stressed about in a way that she, she didn't need to feel stressed about. So I'm just going uh, to roll with your, your interpretation <laughs> <laughs> that works. For Absolutely. Me. Absolutely. Yeah. Other signs that stress is going away and you're sort of getting back to a place of resiliency, are shaking, trembling. You know, when your muscles start quivering in a yoga class, your voice may start to quiver. Your hands may have a slight tremble in them. 
that can be stress starting to leave. Your muscles may start to get warmer and softer. You might feel that tension starting to subside and the shoulders dropping down and the jaw unclenching and the belly starting to get soft. Those are all ways that you can say to yourself, oh, I'm starting to get relaxed here, thankfully. It might be helpful for yoga teachers to mention this in their classes. Absolutely. Are you feeling this? Teach your students. First, notice it in your own body. Then you'll be able to teach your students more authentically. How do you know when you're in the resilient place again? When you're, when you're able to interact with people and make decisions, how do you know when you're there? Well, there are certain sensations that your body might have. You might have a deep breath. Your heart may be at a nice, calm, slower rate. Your muscles might feel pretty relaxed and soft and easygoing. You might have a kind of a sense of being in your body, being grounded in your seat or in your feet or in your belly, all those kind of down, down-phasing kind of sensations. So noticing those in your own body, noticing when you're stressed, tense muscles, noticing when you're releasing stress, muscles getting a little shaky or a little more relaxed and kind of a streaming feeling and then a resilient feeling. Oh, I feel really kind of grounded in my seat. Like I feel like I'm really in my chair here. Or if I'm standing, I feel like I can really feel my feet on the floor or I can feel what's happening in my belly and it's not all tense and tight right now. And then you can teach your students how to look for those sensations and how to monitor themselves so that They can be present in relationship or go into a meeting with their coworker or boss in a way that helps them to feel like they're, you know, feeling empowered or um, able to make decisions or get sleep. So helpful. So helpful. Yeah. So to recap, the invitation this week has three components and you can pick one or all three, of course. First is to take pauses, to purposefully insert pauses into your teaching. Second is to invite interoception or the awareness of the internal experience of your body, or perhaps even your emotions and your thoughts. And third is to provide some challenge with a countdown so that your students are able to gauge how much longer, you know, they're going to be in an uncomfortable place. Did I get those right, Margaret? Yes. Perfect. Awesome. Is there anything else that you feel like is really important to share with yoga teachers about addiction and recovery that we haven't touched on yet? Uh, I would just say encourage people who even show a slight interest in yoga that this is something they can do, that they can bring a curiosity and a compassion to their first class. Well said. That's a, <laughs> that's a perfect note to end on. I want to thank you so much, Margaret. That was really informative and very inspiring also. Thanks for the opportunity, Madel. 
My pleasure. Mm -hmm. If you appreciated that conversation with Margaret as much as I did and want to find out more about her, you can go to her website, amindfulemergence.com. And there you can see all of the different things that she offers and how she and her partner, Eddie, incorporate mindfulness and yoga into recovery. I will also, of course, post the link in the show notes. I do love all your feedback. Please keep it coming. I've been getting so much amazing insight into how to make this show better by hearing from you. So thank you. I also do really want to know if you try Margaret's suggestions for your classes and how they work for you. As a reminder, number one, purposefully insert pauses into your teaching. Number two, cue interoceptive or internal awareness. And number three, use a countdown during challenging exercises or challenging moments in class. I have those listed in the show notes as well in case you weren't in a place to write them down. So please try one or more of them in the next class you teach and then come to the Facebook group to share how it went. If you aren't a member, I would love to have you. Go to teachingyoga.net and click the Join Our Community tab. It's also a great place to start conversations about teaching yoga with like-minded teachers. And one of my favorite things people do there is suggest podcast topics. I'm super open to hearing what you want to hear about. I also hope that you will join me next week for an episode that is all about how to actually make your dreams come true. In that episode, I share what I have learned recently about the difference. This is something I'm very excited about. It. This feels like a, a big insight. The difference between goals and vision and how to use both of them to stay authentic and true to your values while making big things happen in your life and in the world. Until then, remember to make time for your practice, for quiet, and for self-care, and I hope you have an amazing week.